Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful prayer we have just heard to music. We ask, Lord, that it would reflect our own hearts. Where there is injustice, oh God, I pray that we would be just. Where there is oppression, I pray, oh God, that we would be part of those who release people from oppression. Where there is poverty, may we be able to help. Where there is hurt, may we be healers, oh God. And I pray that in your name we might bring your peace, a peace that passes understanding. So Lord, we, we ask as we open up the scriptures this morning that you would reshape our hearts, our thinking, that we might truly reflect in our approach to those who need help, the true heart of Christ. May you grant to us, O oh God, a vision whereby we see the world through your eyes. And not simply carry forth necessarily the patterns that we have seen in the past, but may we look today with fresh eyes to see what the scriptures really teach. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, our assignment today is to discover what Christ-likeness looks like in the matters of justice and poverty alleviation. What we want to do today, the assignment I think today, is to make certain that we, as God's people, develop a biblical worldview of how we deal with those who, have, uh, who are struggling in this world materially, primarily, is the topic that we're looking at. You may not be aware of this, but if your net personal wealth is $750,000, a lot of you say, no, how could that be? Well, if you've looked at the list prices of the average house in the GTA, and you happen to own one, you're already there. You are among the top 1% of the world's wealth. 99% of the rest of the world is beneath your personal wealth. So I know what you're, I know what you're thinking right now you're, as we begin this topic, the topic of poverty juxtaposition to our wealth in this country of Canada, in particular the GTA, you're expecting me to go get ready, get set, get, no, not give, change, change. I want to encourage you today, we're going to look at, um, at the scriptures, this is not going to be a sermon whereby I look at the wealthy congregation, relatively speaking, you understand, and try to shame you into giving money to the poor. In fact, um, most of us are struggling to know what to do. A am I supposed to uh, give money to the guy who stands at the corner of Costco every time I go there? Pretending not to see him? Not making eye contact? Or should I get my wallet out every single time? Might I suggest to you in my own study uh, on this matter, probably not. Now, I know there may be a collective gasp that you're trying to hold back, but, but maybe you shouldn't be giving him anything or her anything. Maybe by giving them something, you are actually interfering with God's purposes in their life. I think we have looked at, for the most part, poverty relief in a very simplistic way and in a one-size-fits-all way. And the simple reality is the scriptures present nothing like that. 
Justice and poverty alleviation are very complex matters. They're not simple, one-size-fits-all answers. The globe itself is diverse, and the reasons and causes of the way things are are as diverse as the world is. I want to give you, at best today, an overview, because we simply don't have the time. This, this matter, this subject of, of justice and poverty alleviation is a, is a massive topic, but I hope to... I hope to stimulate your thinking and, and cause you to reflect on what you've thought before and open up a few texts of Scripture to help you think a little bit more critically about what we're really called to do and who we are really called to be if we are going to be Christ-like in this matter. If we are honest and we understand anything about the life of Christ, he threw around very little money and, to my knowledge, overthrew no governments. So if we're called to be Christ-like, then maybe we ought to pay attention to how Jesus handled the matters of injustice and poverty. I want to point out to you today that I'm only going to tackle really three major, uh, three major issues that I see. There are more. I want to introduce them to you, and then I want to work on them one by one. The three things that, that have to change. So our helping doesn't become hurting. And the first is this, and this is often the way we approach it, is in order to raise funds to help poor people, we, we guilt the haves. And in so doing, we probably don't realize that regularly we shame the have-nots. A book that has really caused me to, to reflect on my own thinking on these matters, and I would encourage Every one of us to read this book. I don't say that often, but when the foreword is by David Platt, I mean, you automatically know you should read this book. When Helping Hurts uh, by Steve Corbett and Brian Finkert, or Fickert. Uh, sorry, Brian. Uh, you need to read this book. It's an in-depth study on Christianity and justice and poverty alleviation. And much of what I'm going to, to do today has, is, is um, reflected in this book, but I can only skim the surface. Consider, for instance, under this topic of guilting the haves and shaming the have-nots. In other words, much of Christian charity has made the giver feel guilty or superior. Uh, if you drive by the Costco man or the woman at the corner there and roll down your window and grab your wallet and pick out a $10 bill and hand it over out of guilt, then really you haven't done anything in the name of Christ. And probably you've done a disservice to the man you've given the money to. And I want to explain that to you by using a story that's out of this book. It can be illustrated by a church called Creekside Community Church. doesn't matter where it is. It's a church just like our church, really. Predominantly uh, middle to higher income congregation made up of professionals living in, uh, uh, serving in a downtown area or uh, an urban center. Uh, this church, Creekside, was feeling in the Christmas spirit, so they decided to reach out to residents in a nearby lower-income housing project, which was characterized by high, interest, or high rates of unemployment, domestic violence, drug and alcohol abuse, and teenage pregnancy, typical of a lower-income area of the city. A number of the members of Creekside expressed disdain toward the people who lived near their church in this particular um, lower class housing development and many of the people were even afraid to go into the area. The pastor of the church decided that that wasn't acceptable and so thought he could come up with a cure that would, would uh, please Jesus and suggested that they do a Christmas project of getting gifts for the children who lived in this area of the city. So, believing that poverty is primarily a lack of material resources, and by the way, 
that is an entirely, that is a complete misconception. Uh, poverty is not, poverty is a symptom of other things, but not necessarily a lack of material resources. So the members of Community Creekside, or Community Church, decided to address this poverty by buying the kids some presents. Church members went door to door at Christmas time, singing Christmas carols, delivering wrapped toys to the children in each apartment. Although it was awkward at first, the members of Creekside were moved by the big smiles on the children's faces and were encouraged by the warm reception of the mothers. In fact, the congregation felt so good about the joy that they had brought to this uh, housing development that they decided to expand their ministry and they uh, delivered baskets of candy at Easter and turkeys at Thanksgiving. But unfortunately, after several years of doing this, the pastor noticed that he was struggling to find enough volunteers to continue the, the program, the church program. And at a congregational meeting, he decided to ask questions as to why people were tailing off in their interest in terms of being part of this program. And it was difficult to get a clear answer, but finally one member spoke up. Pastor, we are tired of trying to help these people out. We've been bringing them things for several years now, but their situation never improves. They just sit there in the same situation year in and year out. Have you ever noticed that there are no men in the apartments when we deliver the toys? The residents are all unwed mothers who just keep having babies in order to collect bigger and bigger welfare checks. They don't deserve our help. I'm sure there was a gasp in the membership meeting. Or maybe it was quiet, just like here. In reality, there was a different reason that there were few men in the apartments when the toys were delivered. Oftentimes, when the fathers of the children heard the Christmas carols outside their front doors and saw the presents for their kids through the peepholes, they were embarrassed and ran out the back doors of their apartments. For a host of reasons, low-income males sometimes struggle to find and keep jobs. This often contributes to a deep sense of shame and inadequacy, both of which make it even more difficult to apply for jobs. The last thing these fathers needed was a group of upper-to-middle-class Christians providing Christmas presents for their children, presents that they themselves could not afford to buy. In trying to alleviate material poverty through the giving of these presents, Creekside Community Church increased these fathers' poverty of being. Ironically, this likely made the fathers even less able to apply for a job thereby exacerbating their very material poverty that Creekside was trying to solve. In addition to hurting the residents of the housing project, the members of Creekside Community Church hurt themselves. At first, the members developed a subtle sense of pride and they were, that they were helping the project residents through their acts of kindness. Later, when they observed the residents' failure to improve their situation, the members' disdain for them increased. What is often called compassion fatigue then set in as the members became less willing to help the low-income neighbors. As a result, the poverty of being increased for the church members as well. Furthermore, the poverty of community increased for everyone involved as the gulf between the church Members and the housing project residents actually increased as a result of this project. Sometimes, in our simplistic ways, we actually cause more damage than good. Injustice and poverty require a robust approach that is not simply buying a few presents at Christmas time and throwing a couple of dollars at somebody at a corner of a street. And the Bible takes us far deeper than that and has expectations for us that are far grander and far more lofty and far more costly 
than 10 bucks out of her wallet once in a while. So guilting the haves and shaming the have-nots, I want to look a little deeper into that. The second major issue that we need to change in our thinking is this issue of gospel-driven churches like ours and our yuckophobia towards social-driven missions. Over the years, conservative evangelical Christianity and progressive liberal religion have gone their separate ways. And one of the major problems that has taken place over these years is that conservative evangelical Christianity has specialized on the King Jesus and his gospel. And the progressive liberal religions have specialized in kingdom social justice. And the two have gone their separate ways. As a result, uh, we... uh, reject the fullness of the gospel, conservative evangelical churches like ours are in danger. And over these past 60 to 90 years have allowed progressive liberalism to take away social concern and modify solutions that are absent of the glories of the King of Kings. As a result, and we have the results today, the results are in. The results of social justice turned over to liberal progressive religion without Jesus has produced abortion, sexual confusion, education disasters, And on and on in terms of moral corruption. Because social change without Jesus leads to moral degradation. And so the call on us is to rescue back the fullness of the gospel, king and kingdom. And we'll talk about that. Because the biblical picture of Christian justice is the mission, it's not a sideline. It is who we are. The issues of justice and poverty are who we are and are what we are about and must be brought back together. Third, settling for temporary relief rather than the hard work of fixing relationships. Creekside Community Church. Unknown to them or in their naivety, were seeking to offer temporary relief to the lower income section of town rather than the robust and requirement of the gospel, which is fixing relationships that are broken. The book draws out four major relationships that we'll look at in a few moments that are broken and are the cause of injustice and poverty everywhere in our world. The four broken relationships are these. A broken relationship with God. A broken relationship with ourselves. In other words, not understanding, having a correct biblical self-concept, an awareness of the great value of humanity uh, uh, conceived in the image of Christ, the image of God. Broken relationships with others causing injustice, oppression, and abuse and crime against one another, and the broken relationship with the rest of creation, uh, an inability to steward properly the assets that God has already given to all of us. And so these four broken relationships are the cause. Poverty is a symptom. Injustice is a symptom. The cause is broken relationships. And the church can't start at the level of symptomatic relief. The church must start at the, at the level of the cause of brokenness. If there's ever going to be a robust uh, repair of justice and, and poverty alleviation in our own community. So, having said that, um, 
let's, let's break down, the, let's look at the three of them, let's unpack the three of them and actually open up our Bibles. I want you to um, put one finger in Micah 6.8 and another finger in 1 Corinthians 1.26-31 because we need to, to know that if justice and poverty alleviation are to start, it will only start if we have a change of attitude. A change of attitude about everything. I want to uh, track with you um, the formation of the people of God throughout all of the scriptures in just a, a quick sweeping summary and, and, the, and, and the attitude that we ought to have in light of that. We need to understand in answering the question, what does the Lord require of you or me, we need to understand who we actually are. And in terms of who we are, we, could, we need to start back at the beginning. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7, um, the Lord God speaks to Israel and kind of brings them down to size when he says to them, the, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the earth, out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now listen, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. In, in chapter 9, verse 6, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. In 1 Corinthians, uh, the text that you're at right now, verse 26, he reminds all of us, brothers, sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Listen, brothers and sisters, let's never forget from which pond we were fished. We were not the high and mighty. We we're not the high society. We we're not the, 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 the greatest people. We were not the most numerous people. We were not the wonderful people in the world. We were the uninfluential. We were the lowly. We were the foolish. We were the despised. We were the poor, the oppressed, those treated with injustice. That's who we were. That's who God chose to rescue. And my, my favorite verse of all of this section and, and one of my favorite and, and, and verses that centers my own heart attitude every time is verse 30. It is because, it says there, it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of your beauty, not because of your athleticism, not because of your material prosperity, not because of your influence, not because of your standing in the community, not because of your rank. It is because of God that you have been placed in Christ Jesus. And every person that you look at is a potential fished out of the same pond as you and I that we might lest we might look down on anybody. And that's why in, in understanding who you really are and, and what God requires of us and who he wants us to be, I mean, this, this subject matters to God of our attitude in terms of approaching those who are treated with injustice and those who are, who are in poverty in our world. You know, the people came to, to God in Micah chapter 6, and, and they were wondering, how is it that we can please you? What would ever satisfy you, God? And, and they became really foolish, and they became really annoying by what they said. You can see it in verse 6 and 7. They, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come? I mean, you can hear the sarcasm oozing out of their voices. Their high and mighty approach and attitude thinking that they were God's gift to himself. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands? So they started exaggerating the ability of them to give to God. 
What if we just empty out our bank accounts and give them thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Or, or then they went to the extreme. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Shall we, shall we give them a sacrifice of our own children? Is that what he wants? He has showed you, verse 8, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? What's the starting point to being of any value to God in this world? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly means um, right social relationships with others. People are made poor, you understand, by the mistreatment of others, by cyclical standards of behavior, being taken advantage of. We're to love justice in a world of injustice. The church must stop recommending abortions and and the exploitation of people's daughters and sons in the pornography industry. It has to start, the attitude has to start in the church of poverty relief and and justice rescue. It, It does none of us any good to sit here and wag our heads when we hear of human trafficking while our laptops are open and where eyes are our eyes are fixated on pornography. Social justice and Poverty alleviation starts in the church with an attitude change of heart. Repair must be here first. We're the ones poor. We're the ones in terms of poverty of soul. Isn't it the Lord who said, if my people will humble themselves and, of course, pray, but turn from their sin then I will heal their land. We expect injustice and poverty to be alleviated in Canada if the church doesn't turn from its sin first. And to take it the step higher, to love mercy. Mercy is to take justice to the next, to the next level. It's not just refraining from exploitation, but it's actually seeking to make unjust situations better. Upgrading the situation of a weaker person. Not just not ripping people off, but lifting them up. And then to walk humbly with your God. What does that mean? But rather to have a right view of myself in terms of relationship to God and who he is. I got to get that right. When I get that right and realize that it was God who put me in Christ, I have nothing to boast about in myself. I have no... I have no right to have a superior attitude to those who are struggling in, a, in, a, in another standard of living. If I spend all of my days looking up to the Lord, I won't have any time to look down on people. That's what it means to walk humbly before my God. Remember who I am, remember who He is, remember the pond from which I was fished. Second, I, I think if we're going to see justice and poverty alleviation, all, uh, it will not take flight until we settle the question of why we are here. Why is the church here? Why did Jesus leave the church? Why, why doesn't he save you and take you right away to heaven? Why does he leave the church here in this world? Is it so that we can acquire a middle-class lifestyle and know Jesus as our personal Savior? Is that it? Because quite honestly, when we, if we really examine the, the vast majority of Christianity in North America, that's what we seem to think is our role. Just get to the place of being middle-class and loving Jesus. Surely... That's not the only reason he left us here. The only way we can answer this question is to ask the question, why did Jesus come here? 
Would you look in Luke chapter 4 with me and then also in, first, in Colossians chapter 1? We're going to actually look at Colossians chapter 1, first of all, to answer the question, why did Jesus leave the glory of heaven and come to his creation? Well, I know the, the quick and first answer is he, went, he came here to die on the cross of Calvary. Yes, that's right. But the cross of Calvary made it possible for the church of Jesus Christ to continue the mission of Christ, which was and is reflected in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Listen, look at it. it this, is a, this is a section of scripture referring to Jesus. Verse 20, and through him, through Jesus, this is why he came, to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Why did Jesus come to his creation? The answer is because his creation is estranged from God. Broken. Jesus Christ came to reconcile to himself all things. In other words, to repair the estrangement between his creation and God. And we are, we are given that ministry. We are called ambassadors of... I hear murmurings and mumblings. This is interactive. <laughs> you know, Jesus is always the right answer. I got that in the first service too, ambassador of Christ. We're ambassadors of... Starts with an R. It's what I'm talking about right now. That's why, I, that's why I use the text. Ambassadors of reconciliation. Jesus' mission is to bring the rule and reign of God to his creation. To fix things sin has ruined. The reason the world is not abiding by the rule and reign of Christ is because sin has ruined it. Jesus came to fix things that were broken in our relationship with God. Injustice and poverty are symptoms of a broken relationship with Almighty God. This is our mission. Sadly, as I introduced you, evangelically raised children like me went wonky in our understanding of the robustness of the gospel. It's Satan's 20th century coup to the church. We became wealthy, and we became fixated on salvation gospel. In our riches, we lost touch with what it means to be poor, what it is, what causes it. I'm not saying everybody, but a lot of us. How it feels. I want to look a little bit more at that. And the reason we've lost touch with it is because we cut it loose to the progressive liberals over the last, as I said, 60 to 90 years. We gave it over to them, and we decided that our only responsibility was to proclaim the king. But we neglected to proclaim his kingdom. We've specialized in teaching people about Jesus and Christ going to the cross, but we neglected to recognize that the robust ministry of Jesus included what it meant to fix the things that were ruined so that estrangement to God could be repaired. And yes, it's a message of the cross, but Jesus explains in fullness how he interpreted Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, when he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Now listen, never once does he suggest throwing money around. Never once does he suggest overthrowing a government. He says this, to preach good news to the poor People who are living in bad news. We all are at levels of poverty. We're all at levels of spiritual poverty. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Sure, that can be people who are wrongfully imprisoned, but it really means people who are imprisoned to addictions, things that keep them from God. Recovery of sight for the blind, yes. Sometimes that means physical healing, but in context, it, it means new vision for those who have bad vision, a bad vision of the world. And the world around them, and generational sin. To proclaim to rele- and to release the oppressed. To make wholeness from broken pieces. This is Jesus' ministry. It was king and kingdom. Yes, I've come to, re- I've come to present myself as king to those, to the creation. And to present and to offer kingdom living to those who will turn and benefit from all that God has given to us. Since we've turned over just social justice and, and poverty relief to the liberal progressives, we've got more poverty than ever because they abandoned the king in favor of a kingdom of their own liking and their own measurement. You can't have Christianity in this world and an impact in the areas of justice and poverty alleviation if you separate king and kingdom. You will end up with the mess that we have. It's also word and deed. Jesus proclaimed the message to the blind man in Luke chapter 18, 35, 43. And he says to him, your faith has saved you. But he also healed his blindness. Jesus was about word and deed Proclaiming the good news, but also helping those hurting and oppressed practically. Church ministries are for the purpose of modeling the main feature, Christ. In a ministry where it's only kingdom of my own measurement and no Christ, it's lost its reason to be church. And where a church only talks about king but doesn't encourage people to to call upon them to to bring their lives under the rule and reign of Christ has failed miserably to help people practically to know what it means to be a Christian. And worship, by the way, is essential, of course, and connecting is critical, but beloved, reaching out with the practical results of of kingdom, wealth, and power is what we're called to do. The great tragedy of poverty is that somewhere in some aspect of life, there is an absence of the lordship of Christ. Whether in how people manage their assets, whether in how they treat one another, you, you can, whatever the circumstance is, the reason that there is poverty somewhere in a person's life is because somewhere the lordship of Christ has broken down. I'm talking about lost and people who know Christ. The starting point for everyone is a repair of relationships. And that's what I want to settle on for the last, the last point here is justice and poverty alleviation will not happen without a biblical worldview plan. You know, the, the so what. I mean, you've told us about, about the scriptures. You've told us about realities. So what? What are we supposed to do as a church? Remember I said, get ready, get set, change. Thank you. It wasn't that long ago. The major causes of poverty are sin, systemic issues in our world, class structures, temporary calamity, and misuse of resources. And and kingdom living has an answer to all of those things. Poverty begins with broken relationships. So let's understand that there are three levels that we need to, in terms of summarizing this, this is just, I told you, this is just an appetizer to whet our interest in, in, in repair and recovery of what the church really needs to be in this matters of justice and poverty alleviation. And you're going to have some time together tonight to go at it in your community groups, to talk about these matters, to talk about practice. But let me give you a framework, a biblical framework, because one size doesn't fit all. The Bible talks about at least three levels of dealing with matters of poverty, for instance. And the one is relief. And quite honestly, relief is 
is the one we mostly choose as church. And it's the least, or, or the least common need in people's lives. Relief is, is about calamity. Relief is about emergency. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan fell upon a problem in a moment. And the only way that that problem could be dealt with for the moment was not a long relationship issue, but rather the guy needed some money for some medicine and some care. Give the guy some money. That's relief. That's generally not the guy standing at Costco, though. It's someone who normally is doing fine, but calamity comes upon them, and they suddenly don't have the resources to deal with it, and it could be you. It could be any one of us. That's relief. That, you know, that's what Jesus is talking about, by the way, in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 text, which many of you studied this week about Jesus, you know, saying, you know, I was hungry, you fed me, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I, I was naked, you clothed me, and all that kind of stuff. I was sick, you... This is calamity, this is emergency. This is not a plan of action for poverty alleviation. And by the way, this is, this is directed to the, these, the least of the brother, these brothers of mine. This is Christian calamity, <clears throat> um, poverty relief, temporary poverty relief. This is, not, this is not the Magna Carta of what Christians are supposed to be and feel guilty every time they walk by somebody and don't give them something to eat and think they're going to go to hell because of it. That's not what this is teaching at all. This is teaching an attitude of heart. What's your heart like when one of your brothers or sisters has an emergency? That's what this is about. We don't go to heaven because of our good works, and we're not sentenced to hell because of our lack of good works. That's not our theology. That's not the theology of the Bible, so don't get confused by this. This is Jesus saying, you better have eyes like I do in, in, in an emergency. It tells me something about your heart if you turn away from an emergency and don't help. It tells me something about your heart. But the second layer and the second level is reconciliation, rehabilitation. That's what Jesus is talking about in Luke 4. In Acts 3, the disciples said, silver and gold have, have we none, but such as we have we give to you. The guy wasn't in an emergency situation. The guy was in a great need of heart, a great need of changing his life, changing his life direction. Under Christ's rule, we don't do for people what they can do for themselves. The scriptures make it abundantly clear in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a man won't work, he doesn't eat. You're saying to me, wait a second, what about somebody who doesn't have a job? Well, then teach him to have a job. Teach him to get a job. That's kingdom living. And, and in, in 1 Timothy 5, 8 and 16, it says family must take care of family first. That's the order of poverty alleviation. Family is responsible for family. And by the way, there's a, an important hint. If family won't help family, it's probably a good, a, a good piece of advice for you that why should you? Because family generally knows why they're not helping family. The worst thing to throw at family is necessarily money if they're mismanaging it all the time. I hope we understand that. Uh, and, and then th third, in terms of reconciliation and rehabilitation, that Galatians 6.10 makes it, uh, the Christian community aware of the fact that we're, we're to help everyone we can, but especially the household of God. We do have a responsibility for one another. So that's the second level. There's relief, there's reconciliation, rehabilitation, and there's disciple-making, the, the highest level toward poverty alleviation and justice in our world. His disciple-making, development. That's what Jesus is talking about when he commissioned us in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission and, and the Great Commandment. Church-based human redevelopment. You can't have long-term solutions in terms of poverty and injustice disconnected from the church. You can't. Now, did God give us all enough money so that we can empty our bank accounts and take care of all of the poor of the world? Absolutely not. Our mission for poverty alleviation is disciple-making and a robust kingdom 
presentation, king and kingdom. We all need to be fixed in Christ to have our varied impoverishments transformed. And it stands to reason that that goes for all of the people of the world and all of the people in our community. Poverty alleviation is relationship building. It's repairing those four relationships with God, ourselves, others, and the rest of creation. That's the robustness of disciple-making that God is calling us to. It takes time. It's easy to take a $10 bill out of your wallet and hand it to the guy standing on the corner of Costco. This, what, Bible, what the Bible presents to us is a robust, time-consuming, all-engaged discipleship ministry of a local church and its, surrounding, and its surrounding neighborhoods and responsibility to its surrounding neighborhoods. It's integrating all of God's truth into the life of an individual. It's not, <clears throat> excuse me, a program. It's a process. And it, it, it's, it's sustainable only in this, that we, um, that we invite people into a discipleship track with Christ. That's the only sustainable model of poverty alleviation and justice. We invite people to stop sinning because sinning makes you poor. We invite people to, to know and, and know the living God and know who they are as image bearers of the living God. That lifts up a self-image, a self-concept. That makes people employable. That enables them to be employable. We recognize that in some of the low-income centers, the role, leadership role models have moved out and left families without role models. We understand that the church has role models for these scenarios. It, it means that we, 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 we uh, concern ourselves about the mismanagement of assets. Jesus Christ has promised to hold all things together. He has given us assets, and many people squander the this, this stewardship of the assets that God has given to them. You can, you can have a, a poor person win a lottery, and they'll be impoverished in a, in a year after the lottery is won. You can throw all kinds of money, unless you change the systemic issues that are in people's lives. Through Christ, nothing's going to change. It's not an accident, by the way that loan shark businesses are all located in the, the lower-income neighborhoods of Oshawa. It's not an accident that there are no banks, but there are lots of places that will give you money at very high interest rates, which keep people cycling in poverty. It's systemic mismanagement of assets. The church is equipped to help people and to train people and to help them to understand what that is. It's about personality, skills training. Some people don't know how to go to an interview. They don't know how to present themselves in a job. <clears throat> it, it requires people to, um, who lack employable skills to, be, to have training for skills. It, it requires Christian employers to be willing to take a chance on someone of a lower income and give them a chance to learn how to work. That's the risk it, it is required of us in discipleship. We're not called to be middle-class wealthy. We're called to disciple people in this world and help them to, to move on with, with, with their lives. And it requires people who want to mentor people out of poverty. It's a church process. It's a church mission. It's, it's a big project. And, and frankly, most churches like our churches haven't even begun to address the humongously growing need around us because of the, the, the immoral standards of life which are plunging people into poverty and injustice. And as the Lord tarries, we have to have a robust change. Colossians 1.17 says, In him all things are held together. Do we believe that? In 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Do we believe that? Can we share that in our neighborhoods? Jesus has called us to go and make disciples. That's the hard work of poverty alleviation and the solution to injustice. Father, I pray as we have just really opened up all kinds of vistas 
recognizing that there are some things and, and many things, are, are, uh, Father, that I know we are doing here and we are reaching in with some of these principles, but Lord, there's more that we can do. We know that. And I pray, oh God, that, that we will not see this as a quick fix or an easy answer, but the work of the church, rescuing people from things that have ruined their lives, relationships that are broken, is the only solution you have given. And you can't buy your way out of that. It requires an investment in the lives of people who need help. So God help us to do that, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. If we throw money at poor people and clothe them, we do nothing more than dress them up well for hell. But by the same token, if we look at the poor and say, may God bless you and send them on their way, what kind of religion is that? The religion that Christ brought to us is robust, it's both end. It's sharing, sharing with people that the king can rescue them from things that have ruined their estrangement with the Father in heaven. And he, he provides kingdom principles that can enable people to move from poverty to sustainability, from oppression to rescue. That's why I love our partner, Compassion Ministries. They have a robust position. They don't just give money to the kids, but they integrate the children into local church ministries and their families get integrated. And so they, are, they encounter the living Christ who changes everything about the way they think. Their whole worldview changes and offer to them material help that will enable them to get out of a cycle of poverty. That must be the way, that has to be the way that we model ministry here. If we want to be Christ-like in justice and poverty alleviation, it's king and kingdom. Our Father, I pray this morning that you would help us with the immensity of this as we awaken to it. And we think about the the sheer magnitude of the responsibility of just being at this corner and the neighborhoods around us. I pray, oh God, that you might help us to bring a robustness that will be an investment more of time than money. And I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to use what you've given to us, the kingdom expertise that you've given to us, and help people. Help people to learn what it is to have a relationship with you and in so doing, to learn how to fix the things, learn to, to have you fix the things that have ruined their lives. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.